Good evening. It's good to see you here tonight. So encouraged by your interest in spiritual things and your support of this gospel meeting. And uh, we're looking forward to studying the Word of God together tonight. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 27, as I read to you the words of a, an old hymn that you're very familiar with. It goes like this. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. The consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free and then go home my crown to wear, for there's a crown for me. This beautiful song was inspired by the passage that we're going to read now and it is this idea that we would like to explore and to talk about in some detail tonight and see if we can't better understand how we can be disciples, followers, in the truest sense of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he'll reward each according to his words. Matthew 16 is a incredible chapter. Many wonderful and exciting things happen in this chapter. But when it comes to our everyday living, there is no thought expressed or no series of thoughts expressed that is more important for us in serving God and in reacting and interacting with our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as those out in the world in the passage we're going to notice tonight. Matthew 16, verse 24 couple of touching experiences over the summer inspired me to explore this passage a little bit more carefully and see if I understood it um, as well as I thought I needed to. Um, while our family was leaving a minor league baseball game in Nashville, we came upon a man who was carrying a teenage boy over his shoulder. His face was facing us and even though this was kind of an awkward way for him to leave the stadium, the situation, um, his face, the look of, on his face was one of, uh, of extreme joy and, and happiness. Of course, this uh, led to some interesting conversations uh, with our family as we walked, walked towards our vehicle. Then a short time later, Joey and I were in Missouri, and one of the elders there, Oscar Morris, took Joey and I to a fascinating museum that was dedicated to George Washington Carver, who is a famous scientist and inventor. Many facts about 
Carver's life inspired awe, but there was one particular detail that hit me and has stuck with me, and that was that this man's favorite song, uh, this man who persevered under incredible adversity, was this song that we referred to before the prayer. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? This man Carver was a victim of appalling racial animosities in the museum. It, it uh, depicted some of what happened and explained some of the things that he went through and some of the things that, that he witnessed. In fact, his description of some of these um, were every bit as brutal as some of the things we've heard of from Hitler's Germany and Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Well, both of these experiences triggered uh, the thought of the love of the Bible, the love of the Bible that Jesus demonstrated, and it, that, that love is not just something that we're supposed to um, enjoy for ourselves, but it's something that we're to reflect. In particular, this passage, if anyone desires, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Have you ever wondered how this must have sounded to the apostles the first time these words graced the Savior's lips? I think it probably hit them a lot harder than it does to us. After all, we've heard it so many times and we've sung this idea and it doesn't carry, I think, the same meaning as it did when they first heard it. Because when the apostles first heard it, they lived in the environment in which they understood, something that I just became aware of recently, that in Jerusalem, there would be hundreds of crucifixions that year. And now Jesus was saying, I'm going to be one of them. And unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, you really can't be my disciple. Well, whether or not we are living out this teaching is one thing, but... It's certainly not if we're not living it out because it's so difficult to understand and grasp. Um, Jesus is saying basically three things here. Number one, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deal with yourself by denying self. You're going to have to deal with others and the circumstances of life by taking up your cross. And then third, simply, just follow me. Walk the way I walk. Talk the way I talk. And such a simple sentence, how hard could that be? How hard could it be to live, live that out in our life? Let's go back and let's look at it piece by piece. If anyone desires to come after me. Well, he's talking to people who were thinking, perhaps when he said that, well, of course, that's us. We want to follow you. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be going with you from place to place if that were not the case. But Jesus was saying, do you really want to be my disciples? Is that really what you want to do? Are you sure you want to come after me? How far are you willing to go? And here we are 2,000 years later, but we need to imagine as if Jesus, when he mentions these words, was speaking directly to us because they certainly do apply to us. Then Jesus gives three ways in which we can test the intensity of our desire to follow him. And isn't what Jesus is saying here just another way of packaging the spirit of the greatest of commandments in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 9? We've sung a little bit about that tonight. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. One thing's for sure, I cannot truly love God and my neighbor without denying myself. A lot of times we think, well, yes, I love God. Yes, I love my neighbor. But we don't really spend a lot of time focusing on the idea of denying ourselves. And when we talk about denying ourselves, what do we mean? Um, it's really pretty simple. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. What do you mean? He means saying no to me, saying no to the flesh, saying no to my wants, saying no to my wishes. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Christian life was just about saying no, but it wasn't so much saying no to me, it just meant saying no to other people. Be pretty easy if that was that if that was all there was to it, isn't it? That's one of the things we learn to do earliest, and one of the things we do most often as a little child, isn't it? We learn to say no. We learn to say no to everybody else and everything else that everybody else wants us to do. But you know, the Christian life is not about that. Now there are times when we've got to say no. There are times when we have to say no to others. There are times we have to say no to immorality. There are times that we have to say no to worldliness to alcohol, to drugs, to immodesty. And the list goes on and on of things that we should say no in occasions when we must say no to others. But here Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying deny others. He's saying deny yourself. Tell yourself no. Now telling myself no would be hard enough if uh, just lived in a vacuum, if it wasn't interacting with other people. If I was just isolated from everyone else, if I had to say no to too much food, no to too much spending, no to too much sleeping, to too much entertainment or recreation, no to losing my temper, to retaliating, and so on. But no, God has placed us purposefully in a world where we have to interact with others. And one of the things that God wants to see as we interact with others, are we willing to say no to ourselves? The world says, say yes. Say yes, never say no to yourself. Never tell yourself no. Jesus says, you've got to say no. You've got to say no to yourself. McGarvey on this verse says, the disciple must learn to say no to many of the strongest cravings of his earthly nature. The cross is a symbol for duty which is to be performed daily at any cost, even that of the most painful death. The disciple must follow Jesus both as his teaching and example. Barnes adds, let him not seek his own happiness as the supreme object, but be willing to renounce all and lay down his life also, if required. That's what he's talking about here. We don't think about that much, do we? Another great doctrine of Christ is found in Matthew 6, verse 33. And when he issues forth this statement, really what it is is just a positive restatement of Matthew 16, 24. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. Same message, isn't it? That we should follow him. That we should do what he did. And make sure that we don't allow other things to clutter up our mind and clutter up our lives. Clutter up our priorities. That the issues of the kingdom and the issues of righteous living must take precedence. In John chapter 6 verse 38, Jesus said, that's the way I live. Yeah, he took on a body, he took on flesh, and he said no to self. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him 
who has sent me. And then, of course, we have the ultimate teaching method. Jesus doesn't say, this is what I'm here to do and this is how I'm going to live. But he shows us by his example. As he agonizes in the garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, hear the words. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want it. He didn't want to drink that cup. So he prayed, if it's possible, take it away. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. No word more aptly describes Jesus than self-denial. And we want to be like Jesus, don't we? we got to, if we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to say no to self. Frankly, I was surprised as I looked through the New Testament at what the apostles had to say at how many times I've overlooked this teaching by the apostles themselves, emphasizing self-denial. Speaking of perilous times, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. He makes that like it's, it's about the worst possible state that man could be in, loving themselves. This is not to say that we should uh, have a, an attitude of self-loathing that we can't stand ourselves. Remember, Jesus says, love thy neighbor as thyself. But the idea here is, according to Thayer, too intent on one's own self-interest. And that can slip into our hearts in some very surprising ways. Sometimes that can happen to us even when we're discussing something that is right and we're wanting to stand up for something that's right. We're not going to say no to ourself. And we hide sometimes behind truth and behind right. Jesus says, you got to be careful there. Avoiding this pitfall will demand a high level of self-awareness and aggressive self-regulation. Stephen Covey, in one of his books, talks about the idea of the, the difference between man and animal is our ability when something shocking, something revolting, something upsetting happens to us. The difference between us and the animal, the animal's programmed. He's going to react. And may react very fiercely. The difference between us and the animal is we're able to, as he puts it, push the pause button. Push the pause button. And just for that split second, we have a moment to think. What's the, what's the right response here? What's the right reaction? But too many times, I know I am thinking self. Self is going to get his opportunity. I'm going to say and I'm going to do what I want to right now. But that doesn't fit with the tenor of the New Testament and that doesn't match up with the life that Jesus lived and that doesn't fit with what Jesus is teaching here about discipleship in Matthew 16, 24. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, what it's supposed to be about is shrinking this me. Shrinking this me and allowing Jesus to fill up my life and Jesus' response and reaction to be expressed in me. Augustine was probably the most famous 4th century Christian writer. Soon after his conversion, he was walking down the street in Milan, Italy, where he met a harlot 
whom he'd known in his previous life. She called out to him, but he wouldn't answer. He kept right on walking. Augustine, she cried, it is I. Without missing a beat and with the assurance of Christ in his heart, he replied, yes, but it is no longer I. Because of Jesus, Augustine denied himself. He was crucified with Christ. And we must do the same, Jesus says, if we're going to be his disciples. It's no accident that in the list of the qualifications for the elder, the bishop, the pastor that we talked briefly about last night, in the qualifications we find this idea of self talked about in both ways, in the positive and in the negative. Titus chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, he says, not self-willed, but self-controlled. So easy to read, isn't it? So hard to live out. Thayer, in describing self-control, says it's the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions. Of course, self-control is listed among the fruit of the Spirit that demonstrate the true maturity and the faith that we're all striving for. You think about this, self-control. This is one of the major themes that was preached. You know, Paul goes before Felix in Acts chapter 24, and we just read about three things. Three um, main points in his sermon. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. No doubt, self-control was one of the issues that was a stumbling block for him. Thayer says, of uh, self-willed, it's being self-pleasing and arrogant. Vine says, it denotes one who dominated by self-interest and inconsiderate of others, arrogantly asserts his own will. It's the opposite of gentle. Then he quotes Trench. One who's so far overvaluing any determination at which he has himself once arrived that he will not be removed from it. You know what it means? It means when you come up with some thought or some idea, you're so set in your ways in that that there's no amount of truth and reasoning, scripture and sound logic that will enable you to be moved away from it. Now, this type of, of self-willed behavior, we can see it in the drug addict. We can see it in the terrorist, in the atheist, those who have been uh, blinded by doctrinal error. But we need to realize that can happen to us. We can be enticed with this just as well. Again, he says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Paul associates this with um, a number of fleshly frailties. The root of disobedience is really a self-seeking spirit. In Romans 2, verse 8, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. That's how you follow Satan, not the Savior. Self-seeking. Colossians 2, verse 23, he talks about will worship, or as the New King James puts it, self-imposed religion. Strong defines that as worship which one prescribes and devises for himself contrary to the contents and nature of the faith which ought to be directed to Christ. It's just like what we talked about last night when we can see what the pattern is. We can see what the New Testament teaches, but we say, no. We start tearing it up. I want to do it my way. That's self. 1 Timothy 2 verse 9 says that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. That word sobriety is also translated accurately self-restraint. When it comes to dress, 
the men and the women of the world, what happens? They show absolutely no self-restraint. God's people can't be like that. We've got to show, demonstrate self-restraint. In Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. It was all about them. James 3, 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 2 Peter 2.10, those who walk after the flesh are daring and self-willed. It's self over and over again that keeps us from reaching full maturity. Consider Jesus' own explanation of, of self-denial. In the next verse, Matthew 16, verse 25, he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Mark 9, 35, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. What's Jesus saying here? What he's doing, he's, he's turning the conventional wisdom of that day and of this on its head. In our competitive world, everyone feels like they've got to win. They've got to win in everything. They've got to win in the educational realm. They've got to win in the occupational realm. They've got to win in everything. But Jesus says here, now you can win. You can win as a Christian by losing. Losing all those things that don't re really matter. By losing yourself for me. Let's move on in the verse. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, try to imagine what that was like hearing. If you were one of those who were that was hearing it in the time when, yeah, they were putting people on the cross. They were doing that to hundreds of people every year, right there in that area. You mean that's going to happen to us? What Jesus was talking about here, of course, was not literal cross-bearing. It's figurative language. He was going to show them the way in the literal form. But we do have a cross to bear. And it just stands to reason that the more selfless we become, the more valiantly we'll be able to bear our cross. When Jesus took up the actual cross beams that he would later be nailed to, he was suffering already from pain, from exhaustion, dehydration, from the beating he'd taken. He could have canceled the crucifixion and called for the angelic rescue that we sometimes sing about, but he bore the cross, he bore it, and he bore our sins. In a sense, really, when you think about it, Jesus bore with Peter when Peter denied him three times. How do you endure that? How do you bear that burden? Jesus bore with Judas when he betrayed him with a kiss. How do you not retaliate when one of your closest friends does something so heartless and so cruel? Jesus bore with the chief priests. He bore with Herod. He bore with Pilate. He bore with the soldiers. When he was reviled, he, was re he reviled not again. As the old song says, he bore it all. He bore it all that I might live. So must Jesus bear the cross alone? No, we all have our crosses to bear. The question is, am I running from those crosses? Or will I take up my cross? Will I take up the crosses that Jesus puts in my path? Martin Luther once aptly said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing 
is worth nothing. But if there's one danger that we face today as Christians living in these United States is we want to live a, a, a life, a Christian life. We want to call ourselves Christians. We want to call ourselves followers of Christ, but we don't, have to, we don't want to have to endure anything. We don't want to have to endure any dis, discomfort. We don't want to have to endure any inconveniences for the cause, for the kingdom. We want it easy. And the Christian life, as easy as it, as it is in the United States, does require some cross-bearing. One reason the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world, 1 Corinthians 1.18, is because it involves denying self and bearing burdens. Matthew 10.38, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. It's a separation. Separation from the saved and the lost. It's not natural. It's not something you get excited about. We associate the cross with pain and suffering, and that's part of it. But when I read, take up your cross, I think of also something heavy. Think of something inconvenient, something I'd rather not do. Kaufman writes, the cross is the acceptance for the sake of the will of God of some burden or burdens otherwise avoidable. You see, we get to a place, sometimes in the day, sometimes in the night, where there is a choice. And something inconvenient is put in front of us. You know what's sometimes inconvenient? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night of a gospel meeting after a hard day's work. It'd really be just a little bit easier to go home, wouldn't it? Than to bring, to get the children ready and come to services. A little less convenient. Well, we know it's the thing to do. It'll pay, it'll pay dividends down the road. After a complicated delivery in 1962, Rick Hoyt was born with his umbilical cord around his neck. Oxygen deprivation left him in a vegetative state. The doctors suggested institutionalizing him. But the Hoyts were committed to raising their son as normally as possible. At age 10, cutting-edge technology allowed Rick to communicate. A, a, a cursor would move across a screen filled with rows of letters, and when the cursor highlighted a letter that Rick wanted, he would click a switch with just the slightest movement of his head. He was able to communicate. The first words that he communicated were, Go Bruins! He'd been following just as closely as the rest of the family, the Boston Bruins, who were then in the Stanley Cup Finals. The family didn't know. They didn't realize. Five years later, at age 15, Rick asked his dad, here he is with this great burden that he had to carry himself, but he asked his dad to put him in a wheelchair for a five-mile benefit run for a local athlete who was recently paralyzed in an automobile accident. Even though Rick's dad, Dick, was not a long-distance runner, he agreed. Rick's words, the son's words, more than made up for their next to last finish. He said, Dad, when we were out there, I didn't feel like I was handicapped. At that moment, Dick, the father, dedicated his life to pushing Rick in a wheelchair in long distance runs. Dick then learned how to swim and train to compete in triathlons. Imagine this, you know what a triathlon is? It's a 26 mile run on top of that, it's a 112-mile bicycle race. 
And above that, it's a 2.4 mile swim. How are they going to do that? Well, when they would go on the bike race, Rick would be rigged to the front of the bicycle. When it came to the swim, he had to learn to swim. Dick would tie a rope around his waist and then tie it to a very thin boat behind him in which he pulled his son and he would swim. Over and over. This became his life. As of June of last year, the father-son team competed in over 900 races, including 64 marathons and 206 triathlons. You may be wondering, yeah, but when we talk about taking my cross, bearing my cross, carrying my cross, does that actually include carrying others or bearing with others? Other people. Let's see. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Charity or love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. While every man shall bear his own burden, according to Galatians 6, 5, in the sense of everyone must give an account of himself to God, and though we should always cast our burdens to the Lord, Paul also said three verses earlier in Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's quite an endorsement, isn't it? And so fulfill the law of Christ. Genuine discipleship, taking up our cross, means that we're expected to bear burdened hearts, <coughs> the burdened health of others, burdened families, burdened finances. A.T. Robertson, his word picture, says of this word, it means to keep on bearing. It's when one's load is about to press one down, then give help in carrying it. That's what Jesus did. That's what he wants us to do. This idea of taking up our cross must be preceded with a certain amount of selflessness, self-denial, because it puts the needs and desires of others above my own. A story is told of a preacher who met a man in his 30s, a man named Sandy. Now, Sandy was combined to a uh, nursing home by a terrible disease called ataxia. The ataxia, what it did to this man, it let, left his whole body shaking, uncontrollable. He, he had no control over it, even with medicine. So severe was his shaking that he was further confined to either his bed or a wheelchair. Few people invested enough time in Sandy to learn how to decipher the mumbled syllables that he struggled to form in the meaningful sentences. But the preacher got to know him and was eventually able to study with him and communicate with him. And they had Bible studies and eventually he was converted from religious error from the Christian church. There were challenges, though, in getting Sandy to church. He wanted to come. But the preacher had to lift Sandy into his vehicle, which involved lifting a 180-pound man, but also managing to corral these unshakable limbs in such a way that he wouldn't hurt him as he was trying to get him in the vehicle. Incontinency was a distraction sometimes for the other folks at church, and not everybody seemed to be real happy that, that he was there. The man passing Sandy the Lord's Supper would have to steady the cup for Sandy to minimize the amount of grape juice that would, would spill. Some people were probably thinking, 
why don't you just leave that fellow at the nursing home? But the preacher's first visit, after Sandy's first Sunday to commune, you can see hot tears streaming down Sandy's face as he stuttered and stammered a little bit more than usual and eventually was able to get his message across. I never thought I'd be able to take of the Lord's Supper again. Taking up our cross means lifting other people's burdens, means helping, means looking and listening and being ready to help others when they have a need. And that means investing time. That's what Jesus was talking about. Fred Craddock, uh, denominational preacher, said concerning bearing one another's burdens, he said, Jesus wrote one big check on the cross, and when you write a big check, you get noticed. Of course, Jesus didn't do that to get noticed. And Jesus wrote the big check, but he wrote a whole bunch of little checks also. And with you and me, we'll probably never write the big check when it comes to denying ourselves and taking up our cross. We can write those little checks. And when we do, we're demonstrating, yes, we are disciples of Christ. We can bear one another's burdens sometimes by weeping with those who weep, by praying with those who are in pain, by waking up in the middle of the night and bringing a brother or sister's name before the Lord in prayer during the day because we know they need it. We can listen patiently and sympathetically as they pour out their heart with an encouraging word or with little, as little as a warm embrace, a handshake, sometimes just a smile and a hello. But sometimes we might neglect, could make all the difference. And folks, these little things, these little things, these are God's work. And they're Jesus in you. And we let our light shine when we do this. This is following Jesus. I hope we can all look for the Sandys around us. The Sandys in this congregation or in your congregation look for the burdens to bear, crosses to carry. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the last of it. Follow me. You know, if we're able to do the first part, deny ourselves, just say no to our, our childish, immature selves a little bit more, we're able to say, yeah, I'm going to take up a cross. I'm going to do some things that come my way that I could say no to. I'm going to do those things for somebody. If we do those two things, you know what? Last part of this, it'll be gravy, won't it? Follow me. We can do that. I hope this evening that the study has been helpful for you. Remind you, this is so fundamental. This is so basic to Christianity. The idea, we're so familiar with it, but it slips, slips from our mind, slips from our behavior. This is what being a Christian is all about. We can't follow him unless we're willing to deny ourselves and take up a cross. If we understand what Jesus meant in Matthew 16, 24, and we're not a Christian, if we understand that and we're willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and we've heard the plan of salvation, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, are we going to be hesitant to say before men to make that statement, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Will we be ashamed if we're willing to do that? Will we say, no, 
I can't turn my back on those friends. I can't turn my back on my family. I've got to just keep walking this walk. No, not if we know what Jesus says. Not if we know what Jesus demands are. We'll deny ourselves. We'll take up that cross. We'll turn our back on religious error. We'll turn our back on our pride. We'll turn our back on that worldly lifestyle. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.